You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Scripture reading is Romans chapter 6, the verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And let's turn to also to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll read the first 16 verses. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. 
At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. And so even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. The text this afternoon is God's word as we have it summarized and as we confess it in Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin, and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God and to His glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the best illustration of conversion is the one that is given by our Lord Jesus Himself in His parable of the prodigal son. Jesus tells us of a son's self-centered rejection of his own father. The son takes what will, what will be his when his father dies and he leaves to find his own self-seeking and eventually self-ruining life somewhere else away from his father. But when he finds himself with the pigs in the mud and realizes that he's tempted even to eat the food that the pigs eat, He has a change of mind, and his change of mind leads to a change of action. He regrets his decision, and he returns home. And when he does return, he finds his father running to forgive him, to embrace him. That's conversion. It's a change of mind, a change of action that comes from such a change in mind. It's a U-turn back to God away from a life of sin and rebellion. And so conversion is coming home to live with the Heavenly Father again. Of course, when we talk about conversion, we usually think of an unbeliever who hears the gospel perhaps for the first time and commits his life to Christ. So we think about Paul preaching to the Gentiles in in Asia, We think of missionaries who preach to foreign countries, preach to Muslims, Sikhs, atheists, and who become Christians for the first time. But Lord's Day 33 isn't about that. It's not about your initial conversion only. It's about continuous conversion. 
Lord's Day 33 is really asking you, have you, now that you live with the Father in His home, have you gotten rid of all bitterness and greed? Have you fully embraced your new home and all that the Lord your God has offered you? Have you fully committed yourself to Christ in every way? Lord's Day 33 is about lifelong conversion. And so the theme of the sermon this afternoon is, what is true repentance or conversion? And we'll see, firstly, that it is the dying of the old nature, and secondly, the coming to life of the new nature. Well, whether you're turning to God for the first time or returning to God again, conversion, the Bible says, can only happen if you're united with Christ. You cannot turn to God unless you're with Christ. And the only way to be united to Christ is through faith. And so belonging to Christ is is the basis for the way we live as Christians. Paul says so in in Romans 6, verse 3. Don't you know, he asks, that all of us were baptized into Christ, into his death. When Jesus died, Paul is saying, he died to the curse of sin that leads to death. When you are baptized into Christ, that means you died too. You died with him. That means you die to sin, just like he did. You're free. There's a sense in Romans chapter 6 that this dying happens only once. Your status changes. You go from slave to sin to slave to Christ. You're different now. Sin doesn't have power over you because sin's not your master. doesn't rule over you. Yet, in Romans 6... Paul still gives this exhortation to Christians just like us who have already received the gospel in faith. He says, do not offer the parts of your body as instruments of sin. Do not become slaves to sin. And maybe we don't like to admit it or accept this part of the gospel. But Paul is warning us today, Christians today, that even though we're not slaves to sin, sin still has a way of challenging us, confronting us, influencing our attitudes, our actions, the way we speak to each other, the way we treat each other. And so when we're honest with ourselves, we accept this word. That we need to confront the sin that still lives in us. We still need to keep dying to sins that still live in us. Do you see that in your life today? We tend more often to shrug them off, don't we? Shrug off our sins by blaming other people or insisting that sin doesn't really matter that much anymore because we're under grace after all. We come up with excuses. It's not our fault that we didn't win the genetic lottery or that my parents didn't bring me up right or that my teachers and my peers give me low self-esteem. 
excuses. Others have theological reasons for not, for never saying sorry, for never accepting that, that sin that is at work in their lives. They say, we're forgiven already. I have Jesus lives in my heart. What more do I have to do? It doesn't matter what I do. I'm, I live under grace. We must be fine the way we are. God doesn't care about that anymore. No more dying to sin necessary. That's the, the logic that flows from this kind of attitude. But Paul is telling us in Romans 6, that's not good enough. It doesn't fly. Ephesians 4 verse 17, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. He's telling Christians, quit living like Gentiles in the futility of their thinking. Then again, verse 22, take off your old self. Quit living like that. Quit living according to your former way of life. In your anger, do not sin, he says. Get rid of bitterness, anger, rage, brawling, slander, along with every kind of malice. It matters to Paul that Christians still live like this. Get rid of it. And we need to confront it, Paul says, and realize that sin destroys us. Destroys the fellowship we have with each other as God's people, and it destroys the the fellowship you have with your God. Don't just shrug it off. Tear it off. Paul says, get rid of it. Well, how do we do that? To begin with, if you are in Christ, it's possible. It's possible because you have the light of Christ in you. You have the light of truth and wisdom. His truth, His wisdom. Now, in Christ, you can start to examine yourself. And you can begin to acknowledge the sin that lives in you. Christ gives you the power to do that. And what happens next, Paul explains in 2 Corinthians, is going to be very painful. We don't pretend this doesn't hurt. It does. 2 Corinthians 7 explains for us, describes for us what it feels like to die to sin. Paul explains to the Corinthians that he was worried that their sins would separate them completely from Christ. That's how disturbing their sins were. What they were doing, we're not sure. Paul doesn't say. But we know that the sins they were committing were so serious that Paul was going to get on a boat and and go directly to where they were and confront them with it face to face. That's how serious it was. And it was so serious that he couldn't wait to get there. In the meantime, he writes them this letter. Stop it. He writes them an angry letter. So angry. So harsh that he was worried that they would want nothing to do with him anymore. He was worried that he was going to embitter them with the kind of sorrow that drives people away and leaves them in their sadness and bitterness. You know, it's hard to confront each other in sins with sins. And it's hard to go through the The sorrow of accepting your own sins and admitting them to God and to each other 
And it hurts so much that Paul is worried that the Corinthians will not go through with it and that he will lose them. You know what it's like to confront a friend in his sins. You worry that he's not going to speak with you again. And that's how it is with worldly sorrow. Sadness and regret grip you. You see no way out. You want it to go away. You don't want people to show it to you. And you have yourself convinced that a good friend would just leave you alone and and let you be and figure it out for yourself. And worldly sorrow shifts blame. It's not my fault. Why are you blaming this on me? What about what all these other people have done to drive me towards this? Are you going to confront all of them as well? What about you? You're not perfect yourself either. Worldly sorrow reacts like that. It's not good for anything. It doesn't help. But godly sorrow is different, Paul shows us. It makes us realize that we've done something to betray our God and to betray His purpose for our lives. It recognizes that we have offended the people we're supposed to love. And it makes us stop what we're doing. It leads to repentance. Your heart is gripped, not with stubbornness, but with regret at offending your God and Savior. It comes to a person who finally finds himself wandering away from God. Wandering off the path of life. Godly sorrow is good for you, Paul says, because it makes you realize that. And when you experience godly sorrow, you're able to turn around, turn back to God. And that was exactly the experience that the Corinthians experienced when Paul confronted them with their sin. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Paul says it leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And so Paul was bold because he knew that these Christians were tied to Christ. Their lives were found in Him. And that when he confronts them, he, he, he sees now that they were able to turn back because he's confident in Christ's power to lead them to repentance. And they're able to go through the painful process of dying to sin because they are united to Christ. It's true. We can take comfort in the freedom that God has given us. It's true. We don't have to be slaves to sin. We don't have to slavishly follow sin. That's true. But Paul is telling us here that doesn't mean that we don't need to keep dying to sin. We do. We still need to keep getting rid of sin in our lives. So Paul is telling us, yes, God wants you to be sorry. He wants you to experience that sorrow. But it's not because He likes seeing you filled with grief. It's not because He wants you to wallow away your life in, in self, self-loathing and, and hatred and despair. Oh, God wants you to be sad for your sins. Because He wants you to be able to turn from them and find joy with Him. And that's what will lead us to coming to life, to, to the coming of life of our new nature. 
We see from the Bible as well that we can also experience that joy of new life because of our union with Christ. Paul says both parts of conversion depend on Christ with us. So he says in verse 5 of Romans 6, If we have been united to him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united to him in his resurrection. This is how it's possible for us now to not sin. It's possible. God has given us a new resurrection life in Christ. Now the command to live is not impossible. It's not out of our reach. In Christ, the command to offer the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness isn't something that we have to wait to do until the new age. We can start doing that right now, today, because we're with Christ today. So believers in Christ Jesus, do not think of yourself as a person who's clawing his way desperately to the home of God that's not your life today. You're not, you're not scraping your way back from the pigsty. If you're a believer, you're home. You live with God right now. And so the way forward is understanding not how to be miserable. The way forward is how to understand by the Word and by the Spirit of God what it's like to live this new life. How do we live here? In God's home. Paul gives instructions about living in God's home. Quite general at first, in Romans 6, he says, uh, um, he gives general advice in chapter 6, but he begins to, to get more specific in chapter 14. If you keep reading through his letter to the Romans, he says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Then even more specific. Practice hospitality. Do not be proud. Do not take revenge. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. And then even more specific yet. He urges us to live in love by quoting from the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And yet, if you tried this today, quoting the Ten Commandments, someone will surely tell you how legalistic. We don't live by the law. Don't you get it? We live by grace. Just love. Forget about being so specific with specific rules and commands from God. That's Old Testament, not New Testament. As if there is a difference between love and God's law. Paul doesn't tell us of any difference. He finds none. He wants us to see how God's law is perfect love. We had a guest in our home who had recently become a Christian, and she was very excited to share some of her new experiences as a Christian, but she also had a lot of questions for us, probing questions about how we should live. What does God say about how to be a good daughter, how to be a good employee, how to be a good friend? What does God say about how I may relate to my parents? They're not Christians. They're Buddhists. Can I still see them? Can I visit them? Can I talk to them? Was she being legalistic? Not at all. 
She wanted to know how to love as Christ loves. She wanted us to tell her, how does Christ live? What does that mean for the way I live now that I've experienced newness of life? Help me to discover it. She wanted us to help her with that. And these are the questions that we need to ask ourselves continuously. The question to do good. But the question of doing good is not as vague and as abstract as some people would say it is. To be defined however best it seems at the time for each person in each specific situation he finds himself in. If it is, who will define what is actually good? I just read an article in the newspaper that suggested that religion, including Christianity... Fuels war, persecution, hate, oppression, and terrorism. The author said that if Christians want to get back on track and and find some common good in the world today, and if they want to develop an argument about what's good, they need to learn how to do that without saying, God says. I once overheard a conversation where people were agreeing that as long as Christians just say, love one another, that's fine, they're okay. But as soon as they tell people what to do, they're a dangerous cult. So you can tell me to love, that's fine, but according to them, as soon as you tell me how to love, we've somehow become a dangerous cult. How relevant today. The catechism's definition of good works. When it was written, the authors were targeting Roman Catholics for the way they invented rules and regulations and traditions handed down by men who forced their parishioners to live by them. The reformers disagreed. Tradition does not have the same clout as God's word. They said, Good works is not what you say, what people say. Good works is not based on the precepts of men or on our own opinion. It's based on God's law. And when we want to find out how to live God's way, when we want to live for God and in His home, God's law is our guide. So we... Christian people today, more and more, by the power of God's Spirit in us, will keep saying, God says. And that was the power at work in Corinth. Paul writes of their repentance, See what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern. What readiness to see justice done. Paul was encouraged and delighted by how happy Titus was when he saw the fruit of repentance and conversion in the Corinthians. Imagine this celebration. Paul and his fellow workers gathered around as Titus excitedly describes for them the, the kinds of things Corinthians were doing. The kinds of apologies they were offering and, and remorse and, and, and happiness and, and finding Christ and, 
as the rule for thankfulness and the rule for life. Delighted, overflowing with joy to see how God brings the new way of living to fuller and fuller expression among His own people. So don't be convinced that God's law is oppressive. It's not. It's the way of forgiveness, of peace, of justice, of mercy, of love. If we could apply, if only we could apply God's law holistically in our lives today as His people, how beautiful, how wonderful this life would be. True conversion is that continuous growth in knowledge of truth, learning how to apply God's will in our lives. When our new nature comes to life, we continuously discover how rich, how fulfilling and satisfying it really is. In the catechism, the next group of Lord's Days are explanations of the Ten Commandments. This is not legalism. This is how we recognize our sins before God and how we discover God's love and righteousness. This is the joy of coming home to God, just like the joy of the prodigal son and the father who ran to meet him. We're at home and the Spirit of God's own Son is training our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes, and our behaviors that fit well in the Father's house. This is not going to be easy. We've seen it from our own lives, from the lives of the people who are close to us, how hard, how frustrating it is to change. Don't be discouraged. Conversion is a gift promised by God. You are God's handiwork, created for good works. That's His purpose for your life. Engrafted to Christ, who is your life. Be all the more eager to put your sins to death and live ever fuller lives in Him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.